Courage is defined as the mental or moral strength to venture, persevere, and withstand danger, fear, or difficulty. It's no wonder then that courage is an integral component of mental health. By calling on the strength inside each and every one of us, we can face challenges that on the surface seem insurmountable. Whether it's persevering through difficult moments, confronting past demons, or choosing to accept the things we can't control and focusing on those we can, we will all have to summon courage time and again throughout our lives and our careers. But believing in your courage, let alone using it, is not always easy. Like the lion in the Wizard of Oz, we may spend years of our lives searching for it. But the good news is, if you believe in yourself, the journey on that yellow brick road is much shorter than you think. My guest today knows a thing or two about courage. In 2003, retired U.S. Air Force Colonel Kim Casey Campbell was flying a combat mission over Iraq when her A-10 aircraft was hit by enemy fire. In a matter of seconds, Casey had to find the courage to get herself back to safety or risk losing her life. I spoke to Casey about her career as a pilot, why having a wingman at work and at home is a game changer, and what we can learn from her best-selling book, Flying in the Face of Fear, a fighter pilot's lessons on leading with courage. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to MindWork, where we're on a mission to transform mental health in the workplace, one story at a time. I'm your host, Jasmine Elgamal. Hi, Casey. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's so good to see you. So, Casey, you are a retired fighter pilot. Can you tell us what exactly is an A-10? What does an A-10 pilot do? What kind of missions do you fly? And what KC stands for? The, the big question. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I spent really 20 years of my career flying the A-10. It is officially known as the Thunderbolt. We call it the Warthog more affectionately. But our primary mission in the A-10 is to support troops on the ground. So anytime that we have ground troops, we're there overhead providing support. I look at it as I'm doing something to ensure that our troops on the ground, both U.S. troops and coalition troops, can get home safely to their families. So we provide close air support to ensure that we help them in some of the worst situations. And I did that for 20 years of my career. It really was my passion and my purpose, knowing that what I did every day made a difference in other people's lives. And we get a call sign. So you've probably seen the movie Top Gun, Maverick. They all get call signs, as do we. It's a little bit of a rite of passage for us. Once we are checked out as combat mission ready, meaning they have approved that we can go fly into combat, we get a call sign. And it's a big ceremony, a lot of, a lot of fun, usually in a bar on a Friday night at the <laughs> squadron. So we get, the to stories are told. And we get a call sign. We're not in the room when it happens. I was the only female pilot in my squadron. Uh, and I left the room for them to tell stories and came back in. And they said, you're now known as KC, which is my initials. And I was like, well, that's super exciting. And they said, no, it actually stands for killer chick. So I think fitting based on the airplane that I was flying and also being the only female fighter pilot in the squadron. I love that because... We worked together for months, you and I, at the Pentagon, and I always thought that KC just stood for Kim Campbell. 
So you've written a book based on your career. It's called Flying in the Face of Fear, A Fighter Pilot's Lessons on Leading with Courage. It struck me when I read that title and when I heard you talking about it. I mean, this show is about mental health and the workplace. And we don't often think about courage and mental health as related. But actually, I think they really are. I think courage, learning how to apply courage in situations definitely has an impact on your mental health and vice versa, right? having the courage to face situations that are challenging, having the courage to face fear, anxiety. And speaking of challenges and finding courage to go through them, you had an incredibly stressful, it doesn't even begin to describe it, but you had a very harrowing experience when you were flying combat missions over Iraq. It's the topic you talk about in your book, and you talked about courage and finding courage in that moment. So tell us about what happened and tell us what role did courage play in that moment? You know, it's so interesting, all the things you just said, because I realize that this happened very early in my career. I was much younger, much less experienced, much less confident in myself and my, you know, where I fit into the squadron and the role that I played. And so that mission was challenging for me. It was very much a defining moment in my life. Not my first deployment. I had been to Afghanistan before, but this was my first combat deployment to Iraq. It was early 2003. The operations had just kicked off. And, you know, honestly, I wasn't even sure that I would be asked to fly missions. I mean, that's how new I was to the unit. Wow. But we needed every pilot we could get. And this mission was like every other where we support the troops on the ground. By this point, our troops were nearing Baghdad very close and kind of within areas of Baghdad. And we flew up there like we always do, refueled to make sure we had plenty of gas. And then we got a, an immediate tasking. Mm -hmm. And at first, I didn't think we were going to do anything that day because the weather was terrible. We couldn't see the ground below. But we got a call over the radio. Our ground troops were taking fire. They needed immediate assistance. And quite honestly, we were going to do everything we could to help them out. And we went right over to the target area, found a way to get down below the weather. And immediately, as soon as I got down below the weather, I could see this firefight. And there were just bright flashes and smoke and tracers going back and forth across the river. And for me, it was very surreal for like the second, you know, it's time's moving fast, but it's just, it's everything that we had trained for, everything that we planned for. And yet to see it was very eye-opening and we were much lower than we normally are. And then it's kind of like, all right, get to work. We got a tasking and a target from our friendly troops. The enemy were shooting rocket propelled grenades into our troops. They were hiding underneath this bridge in downtown Baghdad. And so we were going to do everything we could to help eliminate some of that pressure on our friendly troops to help them survive, to help them continue their mission. Mm -hmm. And so we did a couple of passes. And then my last pass, we had kind of made a decision that, you know, because it was a high threat situation at this point, we had started to see like these puffs of gray and white smoke and bright flashes in the air, you know, next to us and in the airplanes. And so we knew that it was very high threat, but right. we wanted to help the ground troops out. So we were just going to do these couple passes. And I rolled in on my last pass, everything went as planned and then pulled off target. And that's when I felt and heard a loud explosion at the back of the airplane. And I knew immediately I was hit. I mean, there was no doubt in my mind. It was loud. It was like oh. maybe getting rear ended at high speed. Like just I got thrown forward in the airplane. And I remember just looking down at Baghdad below and I could see the ground getting closer and I knew I might have to eject, which was about the last thing I wanted to do. And so it was just fall back on training. I quickly tried to analyze what was going on, 
figure out what was, you know, happening in the airplane. And I quickly realized that my hydraulic system, which is how we control the airplane, was completely depleted. And at this point, my options are eject, crash, which is not obviously even a choice, or get the jet back into this emergency system that we have that allows us to fly the aircraft. And was able to flip the switch and slowly started to climb up and away from Baghdad. And that was kind of the first moment where I was like, all right, I might actually survive this mission. And then I had an hour flight home. I had to make a trip. My airplane is flyable, barely, and quite honestly, an hour to make what I think was probably the hardest decision I've ever made in my life of whether to try to land the airplane in this, you know, badly damaged airplane or just get the jet back to friendly territory and eject. It was the longest hour of my life, for sure. It's hard to really stay focused on something when there's all these thoughts creeping in, like, what if I don't survive? You know, what if I crash? You know, it's just, I had to really shove all those negative thoughts aside and and really just focus on the mission and fly the airplane back. And uh, thankfully, was able to get the airplane back on the ground safely. Huge feeling of relief. I, and again, I like relief is just... It's such an inadequate word. It was immense feeling of relief, just this overwhelming sense of being alive, you know, being back on the ground with my teammates and knowing that I had made it. Wow. You know, we're sitting here and you're kind of very intellectually going through like, well, these are the options I had. I could eject. I could do this. I could do that. This is happening while you're tumbling through the air going down. How did you think clearly in that moment? You know, it's funny. After I landed, I we went into the chow hall after we debriefed and all of these things, but we went into the chow hall. And I remember one of these other pilots had asked me, he walked up as I was waiting in line and he was like, so were you scared? And I was like, what? What a question to ask me. Fighter pilots don't get scared, right? We're invincible. At the time, I was like, no, I wasn't scared. Like, hell no, am I going to admit that anyway? You know, and I just said I didn't have time to be scared. And then I went back and listened to the tapes. We record everything that we do in the cockpit. And I could hear the fear in my voice. I can tell in my voice how scared I was in that moment when I said over the radio, two got hit, two got hit. It's such a high pitch, like just I can hear the fear. Mm -hmm. Like I can hear it. And I know in that moment I was scared. And over the years, I've been able to admit that now. Like, I was scared in that moment. I was terrified. Like, this was potentially me plummeting to my death or falling into enemy hands. I mean, bulls are terrifying. But in that moment, I didn't think about it. I thought about survival. I just fell back on my training. Like, what are all the things that I have learned that I know? You mentioned, like, analyzing it. It just felt like time slowed down in many ways. Like I I could see things. I could see the color of the Tigris River. It was very surreal in many ways as I quickly tried to figure out what was going on. And I think it was pure survival. It was fall back on my training, fall back on all the hard things that I think that I had gone through in my life up to this point helped me and made me better at at doing the hardest thing, right? It was like all those challenges, all the hard things that I had faced earlier prepared me for this one moment to really be able to take action and face adversity, to have the resilience to kind of like, okay, this bad thing happened, but I've got it. Despite the fact that I'm afraid, I still have to take action. Yeah. Sometimes I look back at it and I'm like, how did I even do that? You know, how did I have that composure in that moment? But I've had 20 years to reflect on it now. And (laughs) <laughs> and, I, and I have looked back and realized 
the things that help me lead up to that, to be able to take action even in the face of fear. So a couple of years after my dad passed away, when I experienced panic attacks, I had to read a lot about what to do when they happen. And whether it's the situation that you just described or panic attacks or just very stressful situations where you're under a lot of pressure, you're supposed to, instead of focusing on the panic or the situation that you're in or the possibilities, you started thinking about, well, what can I do? What am I in control of? What are some actions that I can take? Yeah, we're taught this very early in our training. If there is an emergency, if something goes wrong, how do you stay calm under pressure? How do you prioritize your actions? And so I think it's in line with what you're talking about. I mean, the first thing we're taught to do is maintain aircraft control, like focus on the one thing that is most important, which is maintain control. And I couldn't do that. I couldn't maintain control. So the next thing is analyze the situation. And we're taught to just Obviously, in my case, I had to do it very quickly, but it's almost like look at the bigger picture, like analyze what's going wrong. Take the time to figure out what is happening right now in this moment. Analyze, look around in the cockpit, figure out what's going on and then take the proper action and then land as soon as conditions permit, which is a while later for me. But it's this process of trying to just almost like slow things down. Just take a moment, take that deep breath to try to figure out what's going on and then, and then take the right action. It's a way to help us focus and focus on what's most important, gather awareness of the situation. And granted, this happened in a matter of seconds for me, mm -hmm. which is, you know, based on the training. And I think the more you do things, the more comfortable you are in those moments when everything is going wrong and to be able to take action. If you start getting overwhelmed, there's so many things in that moment that were going wrong. There were so many things that like could go wrong. And it was like, I have to push those thoughts out of my mind and just bring it in. What can I control? Like, what can I focus on right now that's most important? As you're talking, I can see why you wanted to write a book about this, because you would think that most people wouldn't be able to relate to a female fighter pilot, right? But everything that you just described right now, if you take out fighter pilot, if you take out combat mission, it applies to everything. It applies to every career, to every situation in real life look at the big picture, analyze the situation, take action. I mean, those are life lessons that everybody can use and benefit from. Yes. So, And I realized that throughout my career because I didn't just fly airplanes, right? I, uh, you can only do that for so long. And as I led teams and things, you know, as a leader, as a person, as a spouse, sometimes like life feels pretty overwhelming. There's a lot going on and you're faced with all these different things and detractors and distractors. There's times where you feel completely overwhelmed in life. And I just, yeah. you know, as I would feel that way, I, it was like, a, almost like I fell back on, hey, I remember this. Like, yeah, I felt this in the, in the cockpit and flying, but this is really applicable to my everyday life. How do I, when I'm feeling overwhelmed, when I feel like everything's going wrong, where there's so many things going on in my life, how do I really drill down to what is most important? Like, what can I control? Then I'll really just take some time to like think through it, even if I'm just driving in the car and I'm like, ah, that one thing is bothering me. All right, let me focus on that thing that how do I get that out of the way so I can really take the time to focus on what's most important or let those things go, which is easier said than done, for sure. <laughs> but, uh, it's reminded me to focus on my priorities, focus on what's most important and focus on the things that I can control. That's so incredibly helpful. 
And I wonder, that brings me to, I have a lot of friends and colleagues who work in high pressure environments like medicine, like conflict journalism, like academia, research, tech. And I was watching a sort of clip of you talking to a room and you were talking about this incident. You had all these things that you did to get home safely, to land that plane safely. You also said you never would have been able to do it alone. You had these other team members around you that were with you every step of the way. And it occurs to me that when you're in a military environment, when you're trained to work as a team, contrary to the civilian world, it doesn't feel like there's room for egos or competitiveness. Maybe there is, but if you focus on that, then your team might not make it. I mean, it has real life implications. So I wonder, what is it that you think that you learned in the military about teamwork and putting egos aside, putting competitiveness aside, when you're in a high stress work environment, about just putting all of that aside and working together? Yeah, everything you said is so true about our work environment. And I think that mission over Baghdad, more than any other, taught me the importance of having a wingman on your side, right? Having somebody to provide that mutual support. You know, in that moment when my airplane was hit and I told my wingman that I was hit, he immediately went into crisis response mode. Like he he was very directive with me. I was so focused on what was going on. He knew that he had to talk to me in a way that I would understand. He was very directive, very precise with his words. And he had the bigger picture. Like I was, you know, I, I was focused on the airplane and trying to get the airplane under control. He's got more situational awareness than I do. He can tell that the enemy is still shooting at us. He's telling me to put out chaff and flare from our countermeasure system so I don't get hit again. He's telling me to move west to get over the friendly location so that if I have to eject, I have some chance of survival. I mean, my brain could not handle that at the moment. Like I just, I was just focused on, you know, getting that airplane under control, but but he had that awareness. And so he helped me survive that day. He was also there by my side the whole way on the way back, talking me through things, keeping me focused. We went through emergency procedures over and over again. And he was just really like tucked in right there with me. Like in the worst of times, I had a wingman by my side to provide me mutual support, to tell me that he had my back no matter what happened. He was going to support my decision to either land or eject. And it was just knowing that I wasn't alone. It's this whole idea of, I call it the wingman culture. Yes, we're competitive and, you know, we're competitive so that we help each other. We're, we want to push each other to be at our absolute best, to perform at our absolute best, because then that makes the team better. And so we don't focus on the competitive part. We do push each other. We push each other to, to work harder, to improve the areas where we might have weaknesses. That, that's what we're focused on. But it's all with the goal of making the team better. And I've realized that having a wingman, whether it's in, in the airplane, sure, but also in our personal and professional lives, to have somebody that will, you know, be by our side, provide mutual support, have that bigger picture, to step in when we're feeling overwhelmed, but to also like challenge us and encourage us and to hold us accountable when we're not performing at our best. And so that to me, I saw that in aviation, but I realized how applicable it is in our everyday lives as well. I get a lot of questions from people, not necessarily even young people just starting out, but people of all ages and all different stages of their career who, who, who talk to me about how much they struggle 
with being in that competitive environment, wanting to reach out, wanting to get support, but being afraid to ask for help or show any sign of weakness because it is a high stress environment, high stakes, mission based, all the things that you've experienced in the military, they don't want to be seen as the weak link. So they don't know how to ask for help without appearing weak. They don't want to be passed up for promotion. They don't want their colleagues or their supervisors to think that they can't hack it. So you talk about mentorship, about having that person that, you know, you can talk to, that will walk you through it, that isn't afraid to show you the big picture and and isn't fighting for attention and isn't going to call you out on your weaknesses, but is going to be your wingman, like you said. But is there anything else that you would tell people that are struggling in that kind of environment to show vulnerability and to ask for help when they need it? My number one piece of advice is is to focus on credibility, to work hard and be good at what you do, and then to know your value, to know your worth, to know your expertise that you bring to a situation, whatever it may be in your career field. And then when you're feeling that struggle, you can at least be confident in yourself, know that you've put in the work, you've put in the effort, you bring value, you have a unique level of experience and expertise. But then when you're feeling that struggle, when you're feeling overwhelmed, right, to seek out mentors, to seek out your wingman, you know, to have that your ally, you know, somebody that is on your side and that you will be there for them too, right? It's So it's that you're not alone. And I think Sometimes it's hard to find that within the organizations that we're in sometimes. And so we have to go outside and that's okay. I mean, ideally you can find that within your team and within your organization, but if you can't, then seek it outside. Seek mentors who have been there and done it, who have gone through it, who have survived some really difficult challenges and are willing to share their stories and their experiences with you. I think Having that wingman, knowing that you're not alone and not feeling alone, but somebody that's going to be very honest with you about, hey, I'm going to be here and I'm going to support you, but I'm also going to challenge you. Like if you need to get back in the books, you get back in the books. You know, if you need to work harder, then you need to work harder. So I think, you know, finding finding your allies, finding those people that will support you and then having the courage to ask for help if you need it. You know, I struggled with that throughout my career, throughout my my life, really, of feeling like I had to do it on my own. And it really, for me, took my husband deploying for a year to Afghanistan. And I was at home as a really now a single parent mm-hmm. and trying to work in the Air Force, you know, be this fighter pilot, a leader, and then trying to just be a mom to my kids and, you know, trying to do it all and knowing that, I wasn't doing any of it very well. And I was really struggling. I didn't know how to handle things. And I I finally realized, like, I couldn't do this on my own. I had to ask for help. And the number of people that are willing to help was just overwhelming and heartwarming in a very positive way. And the more I talk about being willing to ask for help and being willing to kind of be vulnerable and admit that you can't do it on your own, the number of people I've seen now that are like, okay, I'm not alone. I'm not the only one that feels that way. I think that's the importance of sharing those lessons and being willing to be vulnerable, to have the courage to, to speak up and ask for help. As a military, we have not been great at that. I think we're getting better and we're now seeing very senior leaders Mm -hmm. tell people that it is okay to ask for help, to do it themselves and, and set the example and share their personal stories. And I think that's really what it's going to take. But it is hard to ask for help. I mean, it's 
I don't know why we feel like we have to do it on our own, especially sometimes like we're so willing to help others. Why are we so worried about seeking help ourselves? That's a good question, right? I feel like in organizations, you're surrounded by high achievers. You're surrounded by supervisors and bosses who are superstars. If they don't show vulnerability, it doesn't matter how often your boss says, we have these resources here that you can use if you need help. If they're not using it and if they're not talking about their own weaknesses, when have you asked for help? When have you exhibited that type of vulnerability that demonstrates to everyone else that it's okay to ask for help? Because of the mental health conversation that's happening, organizations have gotten better at saying the right things, but are not actually getting much better at doing the right things. There's still that gap between what you're talking about and what you're demonstrating and what is actually happening in the organization. And I don't think it's deliberate. I think a lot of times you're not really taught how to be vulnerable at work. When we go to school or when we do training programs, that component isn't included. You're taught to show up and do your best, but there's no module on how to be vulnerable at work. And so what you said about demonstrating that as a leader, I think is so critical because if you're not setting that example and this issue has come up again and again in almost every episode of this show, talking about the importance of leadership, demonstrating that it is okay to be vulnerable. So if you had to advise an organization on how to do so, how do you actually do it? You know, this is part of the reason that I decided to write the book. I decided to use the word fear in the title of the book. It's this idea that looking back on my career, I've realized there are so many times where I felt fear in situations and or anxiety or stress or worry. And I was always just afraid to admit it. I was afraid to acknowledge it. And what I've realized as I've grown up a bit and had more experiences that it's really all about what you do with that fear, that anxiety, that stress. And I think it is so important, like you said, for leaders to set the example in that, to lead with courage, to me means this idea that you have to be able to persevere through hard things. You need to be able to be vulnerable and share your experiences with others. You need to be able to admit failures and to admit mistakes in front of your team. And now they see that vulnerability. They know it's okay to admit that maybe things aren't going as well as you'd like. All of those things take courage. You don't always have to have all the answers. You can work together as a team to do that. The leader is responsible for creating that environment of trust where people feel safe to ask for help, to share feedback, to talk about mistakes and failures without feeling blamed or shamed. But that is on the leader to create that culture, to create that environment where people feel safe to do so. So if you're in a high stakes environment, if you are in the throes of a mission, if you're working on a deadline, you're leading a team trying to get something done, is it possible if you can't ask for help or show vulnerability or say that you need a break, that's just not possible in that moment? Is there a way to do so afterwards? So get through the task, get through the mission, but then afterwards to use the time to be like, okay, let's talk about what happened. How was everybody feeling? Was there a moment where you felt like you weren't getting the support that you need? Yes, I think for us, and especially in the flying community, we debrief after every mission. We sit down, we do an open and honest debrief. And it, this is the culture that we have established. And in the debrief, we check our rank at the door. We check our ego at the door so that when you walk in, it is an environment where the whole purpose is to walk out of there as 
better pilots, better leaders, better aviators, whatever it may be. And we talk about our objectives, where we succeeded and where we maybe failed or didn't do so well. We focus on some of the things that we did well so that we can repeat them again. But then we talk about kind of the mistakes that we made, things that didn't go well, things that we really need to drill down and figure out the root cause. Why did that happen? What are the lessons learned? And then what are we going, what are we going to do differently on the next mm -hmm. mission? And that debrief is, you know, the intent is it, it's a safe space, right? Where people feel safe to be vulnerable, to share their experiences, their stories, their lessons learned, their thoughts. And I think it's important to take the time and kind of step back and reflect on what you just did, whether it's a negotiation, a key presentation, whatever it is, like, how do we do? If we did something well, let's share it with others so they can do it. And if we didn't do so well, let's talk about it. And then for me, the last piece of this is then you need to share that not just with the people right there in the room, but why not share it more broadly to help other people on the team, coworkers, you name it. And that's hard, especially when we're saying, I didn't do this well, or this didn't go so well. So that debrief is really important. I will tell you the other part of your question that intrigued me in terms of how do you deal with something later? I will tell you on that flight home, like right in the moment coming home from Baghdad and feeling that stress and feeling that overwhelm and wondering if I was going to survive, wondering if I was going to be able to do all the things in my life that I wanted to do. I compartmentalized that, right? I tucked it away and I said, I cannot deal with that now. I have to focus on the mission. But I also knew that at some point I had to open that back up again and really kind of deal with those thoughts and feelings and fears and anxiety that I had in that moment. I did not do that until I came home from that deployment. I didn't do that until I felt like it was safe for me to do that. That compartmentalization helped me on that mission. It helped me deal with that in that immediate moment. But I do think it is so important to come back to it later. You know, like you said, at some point, I've got to have the conversation about how I was feeling. Why was I feeling? You know, how did I deal with it? And thankfully, my wingman for that was my husband. And we had yeah. some incredible conversations after we got home from our deployments. He was deployed at the same time. We did not have kids at the time. And we took some time to really talk about it and to think through what was most important in our lives, like going through kind of a life changing, life altering scenario very early in our married life, very early in our careers really allowed us to take that and then think about what is important. Where do we want to spend our time and effort? Where do we want to focus our life? You know, what is our purpose? What is our path that we want to take? And so, you know, in many ways, I'm thankful for that, to have had that opportunity at a very young point in my career, in my life. But I do think it is important at some point to address it, to talk about the hard thing, the anxiety, the stress and the fear, because otherwise it just sits there and it bottles up and it's like, it's always something that you're wondering about or thinking about. And I really feel like in that moment of coming home and knowing it was safe with somebody safe, like I could finally let it all out and talk yeah. about it. And for me, that was that was incredibly beneficial. Like I felt like from that point on, I could move forward. Wow. It's so interesting to hear you talk about that from your perspective, because again, this issue of compartmentalizing has come up so many times throughout this show. I interviewed a congressman, a former journalist who was covering the conflict in Syria, an anesthesiologist who was doing surgeries on trauma victims. And they all spoke about that issue of compartmentalizing. But what's interesting is that in those conversations, I found that there's a healthy way to compartmentalize and there's a not healthy way to compartmentalize. 
And the key is what you just said about knowing that at the end of that period of time where you have to compartmentalize to get through it, you have to process it. You have to talk about it. You cannot just move on to the next thing without addressing all those things that you are compartmentalizing. And that's what makes it healthy as opposed to just suppressing emotions and suppressing things. And then they come out later in just the most unhealthy ways or you find yourself with unhealthy coping mechanisms because you're dealing with all the stuff that's inside of you that actually needs to come out. Yeah, that's, I think that's so true. And it's, I think maybe it's sometimes easy to just like not want to open it back up. Yeah. And think that you can just get beyond it. But I know for me, like sharing the story over and over and over again, I feel like many times I relive it again. Like I can feel it, I can see it, I can hear it. But I think what I've realized is the importance of sharing that to help others. Like, exactly. You know, if I can be vulnerable and share how I felt in that moment to admit as a fighter pilot that I was scared, you know, that I was terrified in that moment. But again, it's fear, anxiety, stress, like it's normal. Like it is a total normal reaction. It is all about what you do with it that matters. And I think that's the key to remember is like, we shouldn't be so hard on ourselves when we feel fear, we feel doubts about ourselves or we feel anxiety. Like it's normal, but you still have to be able to do something with it. You still need to be able to step up and take action even when you feel afraid. And I think that's really what it comes down to. Absolutely. I think it's so important that when you are in a position where you're privileged enough secure enough to be able to share, it's important to do so. It is important to share. People need to hear that from someone who has been through it to know that it's actually okay. If we don't talk about it, then other people who need to hear it won't hear about it. So I think it's great that you're writing all these lessons in your book that, you know, are going to help so many other people who at first glance might say, well, I'm not a fighter pilot. I probably can't relate. But Literally everything that you've just said is so relatable and so important, I feel, in terms of life lessons. So I wanted to get back to the after action debrief before I ask you one last question. Three things I really liked about the way you described it. One is checking your rank at the door. When you walk into that debrief that you're no longer CEO and intern, that it really has to be, we are just team members who went through something together and we're talking about it. And I'm not your CEO for the next 30 minutes. I'm your teammate. So I think that's really important to create that kind of environment so that people can feel that they can speak their mind no matter what their rank or position is in the organization. Secondly, I like the fact that the way you describe it, it happens after every mission. So it's actually, it's a process. It's institutionalized. And so it almost feels like I'm supposed to talk about my weaknesses because this is the time that is set aside for speaking about weaknesses. I'm not uniquely vulnerable. I'm not going to get penalized for this because this is what is supposed to happen in this session. So institutionalizing it, I think, is really important as well. <clears throat> and then the last thing that I loved about what you said is don't just keep it in the team. Use it for everyone else in the organization. Share that debrief and share those lessons with everyone else. And again, if you approach it from that mindset, it's almost like if you raise your hand and share something, you're thinking about it as a benefit to others. So you can flip the script a little bit. And it's like you're not sharing a weakness. You're not showing vulnerability in a bad way. You're actually doing it because it's going to help someone else. 
which might give you a little bit more courage to do it. Yeah, that's exactly it. It's creating a culture of accountability, a culture where you can fail forward, you know, where you make mistakes, but you learn from it and where that's the expected behavior. Yes, it may be a competitive environment, but in that debrief, that is the place where we talk about these things and it's established, it's expected. This is how we do it. And the whole goal is that we we lift others and then we elevate the performance of our team. I love that. Okay, we talk a lot about learning from failure and not being afraid to fail. And I know that when someone listens to someone like you, it's very easy to think, well, she's just superwoman. I mean, she is just this badass fighter pilot. Like, I'm sure she's never failed. Her plane got hit and she still made it home. This woman doesn't know the meaning of failure. Has there ever been a time in your life, in your career that you did? And how did you get past it? I can think of numerous occasions. <laughs> I mean, I've certainly had missions that I did not fly well, especially early in my flying career where I made mistakes. And one of them sticks out to me. It happened very early in my career, but it was such a great lesson for the rest of my career. And this was a mission at the very end of pilot training where we're being evaluated for a performance. And we're supposed to fly in tight formation, think like, you know, Thunderbirds, Blue Angels, all those demonstration teams. We're, we're supposed to fly in tight formation. And I was nervous, probably. I'm sure I was. And so I was probably breathing hard and the visor on my helmet fogged up. And so I really couldn't see very clearly, which is a little uncomfortable when you're in like that tight proximity to another airplane. And I finally asked for help because I got to this discomfort level. I told my evaluator in the backseat and I was like, hey, my visor is fogged up. I can't see. And he was just like calm and cool and like, no problem. Like I have the airplane. You know, he's sitting in the backseat. We move away. He's like, just very calmly clean your visor and let's get on with it. And I did, but I didn't get on with it. I got back in my position and instead of thinking about what I was doing and thinking about what was coming up, I was beating myself up and thinking about all the mistakes that I made and how terrible I had flown and I'm probably going to fail this ride and I, I didn't perform well and what is he thinking? And instead, what am I doing? I, I'm not performing well now because I'm so focused on the past mistakes. And I did not do well on that ride. I, I got lots of red marks on the grade sheet was is not a good sign. And the, the thing he said to me when we came back in, he was like, Kim, you're you're a good pilot, but that was a terrible mission. You have to learn to let it go. And I was like, you know, in the moment, of course, I was just still mad. But that lesson of like, make a mistake, have a failure and then move on, you know, learn it. Don't do it again. But then you have to let it go. And I think that's something that I still struggle with throughout my life. You know, I don't like making mistakes. I don't like making missteps. And sometimes I can like get in that where I want to beat myself up about it. And then I realize I have to let it go. I cannot stay in this place. It is not healthy. And I'm not performing well because I'm so focused on what I did in the past. I want to learn exactly. from it, but I've got to let it go. I've got to be able to move on. I feel like that's such a perfect note on which to end the conversation, because not only is it helpful, but it is such an important point. This applies to professional and personal life and the mistakes that we make in our personal lives as well, that we spend so much time beating ourselves up over mistakes that we've made in the past. And we carry that heaviness with us and it affects what we are doing now and what we do in the future. So, yes, learn, learn from the mistakes, analyze them. Maybe write down the lessons that, you, that you're going to learn, the things that you're not going to do again. 
but let it go. You have to let it go in order to move forward. I think that's a really important lesson. This was a great conversation. And I know we could keep talking for hours. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Thank you so much for joining us, for writing the book. I would recommend that everyone pick up this book. It's just full of lessons that we can apply to every single aspect of our lives. So thank you for coming on, Casey, and for sharing your thoughts. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks, Jasmine. I appreciate it. I hope you found this conversation helpful. Join me next week for a special episode as I wrap up season one by going through all the lessons we've learned from our guests so far and answering questions from you, our wonderful listeners. In the meantime, don't forget to subscribe, follow Mindwork Show on social media, and share with your friends to help us get these conversations to people who need to hear them. See you next week.